Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath and technology that allows us to remain connected and to worship even if we are not physically in proximity to each other. And so today we pray uh, that although we are separated by distance, we know that you have never been, uh, your hand is not shortened. You have always been able to speak to us wirelessly, so to say, across the airwaves through the expanse of space and time. And so today we ask that you condescend into this uh, live stream, this online meeting, to teach us something. We do not ask for something new. We simply ask that you will show us what is true. And may we be true to you in return. Speak to our hearts now, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The greatest want of the world. Let's take a look at at the passage where this phrase comes from. It is found in the book Education, page 57, and it's important to notice what paragraph it's found because you'll find out in just a moment. This is a third paragraph, and we're going to be looking at the context in a little bit, so knowing the, where it's found will be helpful for that. But let's read it here. It says, The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. And of course, we know that the usage of the term men here is universal for mankind. So we're talking about men and women. We're talking about persons of character, people of integrity. And, you know, this statement seems like the type of thing that you will find emblazoned on a plaque or on a painting on a wall you know uh in in the hallway of some corporation or on the desk of some ceo it's just one of those quotable quotes uh that is that is uh, pithy it's succinct and, and it's sort of powerful but if we think about it truly with the chaos the uncertainty uh the unrest in the world i would say that more than ever, this is exactly what the world is looking for. We're looking for men and women of character, men and women that are able to move the world for righteousness, for the sake of good, to make lasting change that impacts us as mankind and people that we can trust, right? Um, But really today, I don't want to drill into this specific passage per se. We know what it says, we understand its essence, and we agree with it, and we we can see its relevance for our day. But I want to look really at the paragraph immediately preceding this one, okay? So we're going to take a look at the context. What leads into this, this paragraph? So let's take a look. We were in paragraph three, education page 57, now paragraph two. So this is immediately prior to what we just read. The history of Joseph and Daniel is an illustration of what he, meaning God, will do for those who yield themselves to him and with the whole heart seek to accomplish his purpose. And the very next words after this paragraph is, the greatest want of the world is the want of men. And on and on the rest of the paragraph goes. So in essence, within the context of that powerful statement, is the history of Joseph and Daniel. In other words, God is saying, 
The world needs men and women of integrity. Well, what does a man or a woman look like? That kind of man or woman look like? They look like Joseph and Daniel. And in this particular statement right here, not only does it say it's an illustration of that type of person, it says of what God wants to do, what he will do for those who yield themselves to him and with a whole heart seek to accomplish his purpose. So in other words, there is an appeal here. It's not merely a historical lesson. Hey, those people were amazing. Isn't that nice? God is actually making a direct application. He's saying, Look at their life so that we might emulate what God did through them. So that's what we're going to do today. The the balance of our time, uh, our study today, is going to be evaluating, reviewing, uh, taking a survey, if you will, of the history of Joseph and Daniel. And since we're familiar with these stories this is going to be a view from 30,000 feet. So we're going to be flying over and we're going to be just taking in the big picture. I, I often like to study the Bible in this way. There is, there is power in taking things in a minute scale. We just zero in and we drill deep in one verse until we really exhaust the meaning, if that's even possible. But we just try to go as deep as possible. But we don't want to lose the forest for the trees. We need to actually get the lay of the land to see contextually how all the pieces fit together. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to just be flying over the stories of Joseph and Daniel and picking out, comparing and contrasting the big themes, the principles that we can learn in context, right? All in view of the understanding that God used them as an illustration of how men and women ought to be to fulfill the greatest want of the world. So we're going to take a look and we're going to begin by looking at the family history of these two great men in the Bible, of Joseph and Daniel. And as you probably guessed, we're going to start in their homes. Both Joseph and Daniel came from God-fearing homes. We have a couple statements that buttresses this point. In his childhood, Joseph had been taught the love and fear of God, education page 52. Daniel and his companions had been faithfully instructed in the principles of the Word of God. Instructed by whom, you might ask? Well, obviously by his parents. That's page 55 of Education. And this is another statement from Patriarchs and Prophets. Page 144, a well-ordered Christian household is a powerful argument in favor of the reality of the Christian religion, an argument that the infidel cannot gainsay. So what are we saying here? We're seeing that for Joseph and Daniel... To be the great men that they were, they had a strong foundation laid for them at home. I think I don't need to belabor this point, except to say there is something to be said about the family. Society and the church itself is founded on the building blocks of the family. An individual, his character, his predispositions, his worldviews, the way that he interacts with people, all of these things, and we're going to talk about a lot of them uh, as we go along this study, it all starts in the home. And that's why in the book Education, a great deal of what Ellen White has to say about education, which nowadays we associate with schooling, she is focused on the home. So I don't need to belabor this point because we understand the value of it, but I think this also lays the foundation for a few things that will come uh, later on down in this study. So the family history, the first point is foundationally, 
both Joseph and Daniel came from God-fearing homes. Now, to put a finer tip on this, they were brought up in country homes. Now, Joseph, it's very obvious. He was a shepherd. They were nomadic. They lived in tents. That was the patriarch's family. That's how they lived. Daniel, by his point in history, you know, they were captives from Jerusalem. But based on the history of Israel, most of Israel still had a very close connection to nature. Even if they were living in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was not nearly the large metropolis that Babylon or, or the cities of Egypt were. And so he and Ellen White and various places, says Daniel grew up in relative simplicity, which gives the idea of being connected with nature. So even if it wasn't country as an off-the-grid country, but he was in a small town or smaller town, they then later, after their upbringing in that environment, they later went to minister in the cities. This is a pattern, right, throughout history. Moses was brought up, actually, he was brought up in the city. You know, he, he spent 12 years at home with his mother as a slave, went to Pharaoh's palace, and then he had to spend decades being retrained in the wilderness, out in the country, before he came back to lead his people out. So Jesus was raised in the country, John the Baptist, I mean, on and on it goes. And of course, uh, Ellen White, Spirit Prophecy, has plenty to say regarding country living and where to raise our children. I think this is an important point um, regarding raising children with the character to move the world. This is what we're talking about today. But additionally, they were both taught their Bibles. I think this goes without saying. Joseph knew the difference between right and wrong. He knew that when Mrs. Potiphar came to seduce him, he could say, Why, how can I commit this sin against God? He knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. Daniel really knew his Bible. Not only did he know that it was inappropriate to eat food offered to idols and the health laws right in chapter 1, he understood that God is able to interpret dreams. He probably knew the story of Joseph. And then later on, he was reciting Bible prophecy in his prayers. He knew the weak 70-year captivity prophecy from Jeremiah. Actually, why was Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 praying to Jerusalem? He knew what Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. If my people would pray towards Jerusalem, he was doing what the Bible said because he knew his Bible. And of course, Daniel later ended up writing a whole book of the Bible. Now, Practically speaking, at home, they learned faithfulness in little things. They had excellent work ethic. We can see in both of their lives, they were faithful in the little things that allowed them to be faithful in the greater things. And then beyond that, both of them developed a deep personal connection with God. Their religion was not merely an academic or an intellectual one, although they knew what they believed. They knew God himself. We're told, if you, you can read about this later this afternoon, when Joseph was being marched to Egypt as a slave, that day he went from a petted child to a man, courageous and self-possessed. What made that change? On that day, Joseph made a decision, I will be faithful to God, no matter what. And when Potiphar's wife came to him, he wasn't merely saying this is wrong because of the uh, you know, arguments to intellectual Uh, the intellectual basis of morality, he was saying, I can't do this and betray my God, my personal God, the one who has never left me and has been with me all throughout my slavery experience. And of course, Daniel, we know, he would have, he would rather be, you know, chow for the lions rather than give up his personal devotional time. Because intellectually, he could say, yeah, I can pray in my closet. But he would not betray his relationship with his God. They had a deep 
personal connection with God. And when you know, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel later on when he's an old man and, and, and in prophecy, angel says, Daniel, thou well-beloved. Right? God responds with an emotional relationship type uh, response to Daniel. They knew each other. There was a personal connection with God. Now, we say all this right, about the family history of Joseph and Daniel, and I think you might be feeling what I'm feeling. I have a little girl at home. She's four, almost five. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, I have failed my daughter. My home, I, you know, we try, right? We attempt to create this kind of home environment. But if we want to raise ch- children to be like Joseph or Daniel, what hope is there? Because I fail so many times to accomplish this ideal. And of course, we can look back at our upbringing and we can say, who has, who has a perfect home? How can anyone possibly grow up like Daniel right, or Joseph? Well, this is the big twist as far as the family history. And that is that we actually know relatively little about Daniel's family. So I'm not going to speculate too much about what his family life was like, except to know uh, these things that we can f- uh, figure out implicit in the text, implied in the text. But probably Daniel's upbringing was relatively uneventful. That's why the Bible didn't feel it necessary to articulate what his upbringing was like. However, we know a great deal about Joseph's family. So I want you to take all of these positive things that we just talked about, about Joseph's family, and put it on a shelf. We're going to come back to it. And let's take a look at the extended family of Joseph. All right, Joseph's family history. There is a family history of lying. Okay, Abraham lied about his wife being his sister multiple times and got him in trouble. And guess what? His son Isaac does the same thing about his wife. We know Laban. Laban is on uh, Joseph's mother's side of the family. And you know it's because of good old Laban that Jacob ended up marrying both Leah and Rachel, right? There was a big switcheroo on the wedding night. Lying, deceit. And Jacob himself, Joseph's father himself, sort of made his name. He's sort of famous in Bible in the Bible because of his lying uh, to steal the birthright, pretending to be his brother and all this kind of thing. Well, there's also a history of polygamy. Abraham had multiple wives. Jacob, of course, has multiple wives. And we know the ensuing problems that resulted, the jealousy, the backbiting between the women in the household. Sarah and Hagar had a massive falling out. Rachel and Leah, there was terrible recrimination between them, and you can read about it. I mean, both women were in severe distress, and it very obviously bled into their children and the family environment. And you remember, Rachel and Leah, they're sisters. They grew up together. And the situation of the marriage to Jacob really put a strain on that relationship. But then beyond that, there was sexual immorality. Beyond the polygamy, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Joseph's oldest brother, uh, slept with, had sexual immorality with uh, his father's concubine. And then Judah, uh, this is a really X-rated story, ended up impregnating his own daughter-in-law through a very odd and just bizarre circumstances. You can read about the story later. Uh, suffice it to say, uh, they had some very twisted behavior in that home. Well, as if that's not bad enough. There was genocide committed by family members, Levi and Simeon, when their sister Dinah was raped uh, by Shechem. 
they went in when all those men were circumcised. They went in and they massacred all the men in the whole, whole town. These guys were barbaric. They were immoral. If I may use the term, they were thugs. They were rough, rough men. These were Joseph's brothers. And of course, we know about the parental favoritism. Uh, Jacob preferred jo- uh, Joseph above all his brothers, which fomented further hatred as if they weren't emotionally imbalanced already. And this led to something that to us would seem inconscionable, unconscionable. The 10 older brothers sold their brother into slavery. And then, bringing back the theme of lying again, they pretended that it was a murder, they covered it up, and they lied to their elderly father for decades, for at least 13 years at least. Uh, And so we see a pathological pattern, if you will. Joseph came from a family with severe dysfunction, and if I might say a pathological inherited tendency to evil. They were pathological liars, if nothing else. Joseph was born into a less than ideal family. I hope this is clear. And the Bible does not mince its words about Joseph's family. And remember, this is the patriarchal line. God himself identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He claims them. But look at this family. They are messed up. Messed up in almost every conceivable way. And this is the family that Joseph was born into. So let's tap the brakes. You might be thinking, now how can these two things be true? The previous slide, we just looked at all the wonderful things about Joseph's family. He was God-fearing, he learned his Bible, he knew to be faithful to God, he had a personal relationship. How can that and this slide of his family history and all these issues, how can the two harmonize? How can both be true at the same time? Well, family dysfunction is actually not so uncommon after all. We might think it's fairly modern of a phenomenon to have family troubles. Well, not so fast. What we see in the story and the family history of Joseph is that it is possible for a home to have severe dysfunction even though God is taught there. Both things can be true at once as, as cognitively you know, incongruent as it may seem. Other characters in the Bible, Eli, the priest, who raised Samuel, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, right? Eli really had problems in his home with his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were rascals, no other way to put about it, immoral men. And then, of course, we know Lot, whom God himself calls a righteous man. God himself sends angels to save him out of uh, destruction from Sodom. Of course, there must have been some problem in the home because his wife was lost, some of his children would not escape with him, and the children that did escape ended up committing immorality and got pregnant by their own father. There's something wrong with that family. And of course, Saul, King Saul, that is, he started off well enough, and then he lost his mind. And through it all, there was dysfunction in the family, but Jonathan was faithful throughout. So there is this pattern throughout a lot of the families in the Bible that there is family discord. 
dysfunction, misbehavior, gross immorality even. But even in those homes, God is able to work. And Joseph is an example of that. Now, I need to also mention the flip side of the coin, and that is that it is possible to have a peaceful and well-ordered home where God is absent. Is it possible for an atheist to have a peaceful, well-ordered, properly behaved, clean-cut kids? Of course. Of course that's possible. But that's no evidence that God is present there. You can still have infidels and apostates coming out of a situation like that. So the point of this is, God is able to save even in either of these circumstances. That's the story of Joseph's family. The patriarchal family, if anything, shows us that God doesn't necessarily pick the best specimen of humanity. He doesn't have to. He calls the weak to be his representatives. He calls the weak to demonstrate to the world his power and his glory. And this should give us hope. Because earlier we were looking at the family. We say a well-ordered family is a great argument uh, for Christianity. Yes, that is a great argument. But God is not limited to our conception of what family can be. Even if we've made mistakes, here's the point. Even if we've made mistakes, God is able to pluck good out of it and still able to speak into that experience and to transform a life that's laden with cultivated or inherited cult uh, tendencies to evil. In fact, let's take a look at a statement that says just that. Ministry of Healing, page 176. God has not left us to battle with evil in our own in, uh, finite strength. Whatever may be our inherited or cultivated tendencies to wrong, we can overcome through the power that, he's, that he is ready to impart. And I say amen to that. Because when we read the statement, the greatest want of the world is the want of men, men with backbone and character and integrity. And God points at Joseph and Daniel and say, this is what they're like. This is the type of men I want you to be. We might get discouraged and say, how can I possibly be like Joseph? How can I possibly be like Daniel? Well, look at Joseph's family. And that gives us a little bit of hope because they t- God was able to bring something fantastic, spectacular, that glorified his name out of the muck and the mire of a severely dysfunctional situation. There is hope for us. So let's switch gears a little bit. That's all their upbringing. We talk about Joseph and Daniel and their family history. That's their upbringing. I call this next section their professional history, which really is another way of saying their adult life, their career, if you will. So what can we learn about them? How did they start in their adult lives? Well, they started off as slaves. Talk about, you know, we frequently talk about coming fresh out of college. We want to get in on the ground floor, right? And work our way up in our profession. They weren't even offered that opportunity. They started in the basement. They weren't even in the basement. They were in the dungeon that was beneath the basement. They were both slaves. They had the most severe uh, an equitable situation possible to begin their adult life. But what else can we learn? Both of them excelled in what I call their academic education. And this is not, of course, the, the only education that they had. They had their character education, their spiritual education at home. And when they went to their respective places of study, in Egypt for Joseph, in Babylon for Daniel, they did not deny or reject intellectual pursuits. 
For Joseph, we don't know exactly what he learned. It wasn't formal schooling in the sense of going to university. Uh, Daniel had a little bit more of that. But Joseph probably learned management. He probably learned some accounting. He learned maybe some logistics. He learned about, you know, probably some financial matters. And he was able to excel in doing the things that he was taught. That's why Potiphar elevated him. And, uh, and later on, this was probably why Pharaoh even was willing to consider giving Joseph such a high leading role in the nation uh, if he didn't previously have experience. Now, of course, Daniel, uh, he went through the University of Babylon and he was 10 times wiser. Daniel became the smartest guy in the room whenever he walked into the room. Scientific knowledge, literary knowledge, historical knowledge, mathematics, you know, these are probably the things that he had to learn in Babylon. He did not reject and put aside those things and say, I know the living God. Those things don't matter. You guys are all apostate pagans anyway. I've got nothing to learn from you. That wasn't the attitude that they had. They learned to excel intellectually. And both of them thrived in environments hostile to spiritual growth. This is very important. Of course, this harkens back to the things that they learned in their childhood. They had backbone. They were able to stand firm for their beliefs. And both of them were falsely accused as a direct result of their fidelity to God. There's actually some two sort of related points here on this uh, point of their history. The first is that they... They did everything right. They followed the. They were compliant with the obligations of the of the of the laws of the land, so to say. The only way that their enemies could find anything against them, both Joseph and Daniel, was by turning the circumstances around so that they get accused for their fidelity to God, their faithfulness, and so this tells me something we need to come as close as possible to being compliant and to being obedient to the powers that be around us and to not permit people to poke holes at us because of our lackadaisical nature in other areas of life that we may feel unimportant. To be faithful to God frequently means upholding the proper witness in the way that we carry ourselves in everything that we do. And of course, we understand that, you know, in the end time scenario, that's exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be conflict between the laws of God and the laws of man. And when that day comes, may we be faithful under temptation like they were, but also may we understand and hope that other people will not have other further accusations against us that further drives uh, their narrative that we, you know, deserve to be punished and all of the rest. Now, for Joseph and Daniel, both were faithful under intense temptation. We know this, uh, you know, with Mrs. Potiphar, with Joseph, and then I'm sure further on in, in Egypt's court, there were other temptations. And Daniel, over and over, we read about temptation with him, and he was faithful in all circumstances and their response. Both were faithful unto death. Daniel, quite literally, was willing to be fed to the lions. And then his friends were willing to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Yes, we all know that. Joseph, on the other hand, we don't see it stated explicitly, but it certainly is implied. As a slave, particularly a Hebrew slave in Egypt, what was to prevent Potiphar from just taking his life? By rejecting his master's wife's advances, he very well 
could have lost his life, but he was faithful nonetheless. And this is what we were talking about, being true to, uh, to duty as the needle to the pole. Now, continuing, they both ended up interpreting dreams, and they both became advisors to kings. This means God was able to give them responsibility because they were able to accomplish good in the other areas of life. But this next point I think is important, and that is that both were honored in the eyes of God and man. It reminds me of what was said about Jesus, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This doesn't mean that there were no people that disliked Joseph and Daniel. In the case of Daniel, it's very obvious there were plenty of people that disliked him. It doesn't mean everybody likes you. It's not a matter of popular, you know, being popular and wondering what popular opinion is about us. I don't think that's what this is about. Being honored or, or growing in favor with God and man, I think is talking more about emotional intelligence. They were, re- they were able to have a strong relationship with God, but they were also good with people. You can read about it. Joseph, Potiphar obviously liked him. Uh, the prison guards liked him. The, the men that he interpreted their dreams, the butler and the baker, they liked him. He was personable. They cared about what Joseph thought. Same thing with Daniel. The prince of the eunuchs liked him. Arioch, captain of the guard, coming to take him to his execution, responded in a way as though they had a relationship. Like, hey, I'm here to kill you, but I'd rather not do it. What's going on? Daniel asks, and he takes him to the king. That doesn't seem like, you know, a guy that, doesn't have any type of EQ, right? Later on with, with the episode with the lion's den, the king couldn't sleep all night because of Daniel. He obviously cared for the man. Daniel and Joseph were not only good with spiritual things, the intellectual side of things, they were good with people. And I think this is one of the weaknesses of our uh, intellectual pursuit of truth sometimes is that we know so much that we almost seem as though we don't care how we're able to relate what we know with people in a kind and winsome way. When I think about the greatest want of the world, I think there's not just men and women of character, but men and women of compassion and character melded together. And I think that's what really sets Daniel and Joseph apart. I think if we were to meet them today, we, they would be charming. They would be uh, intelligent people that we would want to associate with and we could respect and, and, and we would look up to them in that regard. So all of this is simply to say both Joseph and Daniel exhibited excellence in all facets of life, all facets of life, intellectually, academically, professionally, socially, spiritually, all of it. And of course, neither of them were rebuked for any sins in scripture. Now, of course, we know both were sinners, Saved by grace, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but neither of them were rebuked for any sin in Scripture. Now, with Joseph, there were a few instances, just because we know more about his upbringing, you sort of wonder, is that just a spoiled brat talking, or is that innocence? And then a few things that happened in Egypt might be interpreted as, you know, I wonder if that's appropriate totally, what he's doing there, you know, pretending that he doesn't know his brother, you know, that kind of thing. But he certainly was not rebuked for it. And how many people in the Bible can we say about that? In fact, God did not mince any words about any of Joseph's other family members. In fact, God was brutally honest about all of their failings, but with Joseph, God didn't have anything to rebuke. And that just goes to show the level 
of excellence in their lives spiritually. But here we go. Both of them were victims of the cruelest injustice and oppression. You remember that. They, were, they, they started off not even at the bottom of the totem pole. They were like the guy who dug the hole to put the totem pole in. They were the slaves. But then both of them ended up receiving wealth and prestige and position and power. In a way, this is really how we can summarize the professional, their adult life period of Joseph and Daniel. They started off as victims of grinding oppression and injustice and betrayal. But through the providence, providential workings of God, they ended up in a position of wealth, prestige, position, and power, or what we might call privilege. But what can we say about that? Neither Joseph nor Daniel allowed themselves to be defined by their victimhood, although they could have. Just think about what they went through. Joseph was betrayed by his own flesh and blood. Talk about injustice. Daniel was captured by an invading power, and he was marched across the desert, and he was made a eunuch. There was physical mutilation to his body, oppression, injustice. But neither of them allowed that to identify or define who they were. But neither, the flip side is, neither did they allow themselves to be defined by their privilege. Once they actually attained their status, that didn't get to their head either. Through it all, from beginning to finish, they identified as sons and servants of the living God. And this kept them grounded, and this gave them purpose and mission, and it drove them in how they responded to the hand that was dealt to them, how they responded to circumstances, whether for good or for ill, whether they were abounded or whether they were abased, they kept centered on this reality. I am not defined by my outward circumstances. I'm defined by the living God who made me and who will come to redeem me someday. But of course, they didn't deny their history. Uh, but, their, the, but their history, their personal experience did not drive how they identify themselves or what they did with their lives. Because imagine, if Joseph, were, if Joseph identified himself with the injustice that he was subjected to, once he got power, would he not have sought revenge against his oppressors? Where's Potiphar's wife? I'm going to show her a thing or two. And when his brothers came, would he have showed them any mercy if he identified himself as a victim in need of revenge or retribution? In fact, at the end of the day, Joseph saved them all. He saved all of their lives, assuming Potiphar and his wife are still alive, of course. Daniel? Daniel, he became one of the leading luminaries in the government, governing system of the world power of Babylon and Medo-Persia. But he never forgot about the plight of his people in captivity. He never forgot about the injustice that was meted out against his people. He prayed for deliverance. He worked on their behalf. He interceded on their behalf with God. He prayed for them and he identified himself, yes, as a captive, as, as, as a servant of the living God, but it didn't drive 
uh, his actions. And we can refer to other people also, slaves, Nehemiah, or captives in a foreign power. Nehemiah, he was not defined by the circumstances, but he chose to use his privilege to aid in the cause of God, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Esther was an oppressed class, was part of an oppressed class, but she realized God has called me into the kingdom for such a time as this. She used her privilege to help those who were disadvantaged, to understand her role in all of this was not driven by the outward circumstances, but by the identity that she gained as a daughter of the living God and his representative. And so, for Joseph and Daniel, how did this lead into the history of their accomplishments? What did they actually achieve with this mindset, despite the history and all the good and the bad that they went through? Well, let's summarize very quickly. Joseph saved the most powerful nation in the world from famine, and in so doing, he saved the uh, the Hebrew race and quite literally the world. Imagine today a man stands up with the wisdom of God imbued upon him, and he single-handedly resolves the COVID-19 pandemic crisis in the world. That, in essence, would be equivalent to what Joseph did. Joseph saved the world. What about Daniel? Daniel converted the most powerful monarch in the world from heathenism and remained in the cabinet of the kingdom that overthrew Babylon. On top of that, he became the primary apocalyptic prophet in the Bible. So it's like Daniel went over there and converted Adolf Hitler to the gospel. It's, that's like what he did. And then after Nazism fell, he went and converted Stalin too, right? I mean, like that's, that might not be the perfect analogy, but more or less, that's the, that's the stratosphere in which Daniel was operating in his day. And that's the kind of influence that he had. And then on top of that, he wrote the book of Daniel, which is the foundation of our end time prophetic understanding. Revelation really is merely a repeat and enlarge of what God initially told through Daniel. Both of these men made an incredible, indelible impact on the world, on society in their day, as well as all the way down to our history today. Both men had outsized and disproportionate impacts on their societies, which continues even to this day. That's amazing to think about. Their contributions to the temporal and eternal good of mankind truly are immeasurable. For thousands of years, their life work continues to resonate and make an impact today. So if I can, make, if I can put it succinctly, for Joseph and Daniel, their impact on the world wasn't merely limited to a pithy post or a meme on social media. If I could point the finger back at myself a little bit, neither was it just preaching a sermon that get posted on Audioverse. Sometimes we feel like if I've done my part in, uh, you know, silencing my intellectual opponent on social media by, you know, beating them into silence with my unassailable arguments and my way with words on social media, my, my wit and my cleverness with the memes that I can post and the emojis that I can uh, uh, 
muster to my defense, right? We feel like we've done our, our part. We've just saved the world. Uh, I think our sights are set a little too low because God set Joseph and Daniel up as the models for us to, to emulate. The greatest want of the, wor- of the world today are men and women like Joseph and Daniel. Men and women who can literally move the world for the sake of righteousness, not just armchair quarterback and type, you know, clever things on a keyboard. And listen, it wasn't because of the hand that they were dealt. They had disadvantages. They had privileges. They were oppressed. And then they had, you know, power later on. That wasn't their secret. What was their secret? What was the secret to their power? What was the secret to their ability to move the world for God? Well, we looked at the book Education. That's really what we've been, that was our springboard and we've really been mining the concepts in the statement. We read Education, page 57, page 50, uh, paragraph 3, and we went back to paragraph 2. Now we're going to skip forward to paragraph 4. All right, so we are looking at three paragraphs uh, and the two paragraphs sandwiching the one about the greatest want of the world now. So the paragraph right after that says this, but such a character, the character like Joseph and Daniel, is not the result of accident. It is not due to special favors or endowments of providence. A noble character is the result of self-discipline, of the subjection of the lower to the higher nature, the surrender of self for the service of love to God and man. This is a powerful statement because such a character is never the result of an accident. It's never the result of an accident. Joseph and Daniel didn't just happen to be great. It didn't just happen to be that their DNA and the chromosome just lined up in just the right way that created this this amazing specimen that had the unique mix of IQ with EQ and spiritual acuity and and born in the right family. It just all happened by chance. That, That doesn't happen is what we're told. It doesn't happen by chance. What does it tell us? It tells us there are no advantages nor disadvantages that precludes anyone from becoming such a person today. And that gives me hope because there has been stuff in my history that I feel like, if I were to think about it very literally, may doom me from ever attaining the height of character like Joseph and Daniel. I might feel like it's too late. There's nothing that I can do. God says, no, it's not too late for you. If you're willing to work with me, I'm willing to work with you. And Joseph and Daniel's history tells us that all are given equal opportunity to be transformed into the men and women that the world desperately needs today. God is able to do it again. He wants to do it again. In fact, let's take a look at a statement that uh, buttresses that point. Education, page 262. It says this, And many a lad of today, growing up as did Daniel in his Judean home. And I think it would probably be appropriate to insert Joseph in there as well. Studying God's word and his works and learning the lessons of faithful service will yet stand in legislative assemblies, in halls of justice, or in royal courts as a witness 
for the king of kings. What does this statement tell us? It tells us that what God has accomplished before through Joseph and Daniel, not only can he do it again, he positively intends to do it again. It says, will yet stand. God plans to do it. That means there are going to be young men, young women, maybe older men, older women, that God through them will make an impact on the world, in society, for his church, for the sake of the gospel, on a level like what he did through Joseph and Daniel. The greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men like Joseph and Daniel. And God is telling us he wants to present and to use such men and women in the world today. So how do we do this? How can we rise up to this challenge? How can we respond to this appeal that God is implicitly giving it to us? When he says the greatest want of the world is want of men, implied in that statement is, what, are you going to be the one? Are you going to be the one that God is able to work through? Well, to effect change in the church and in society, we must first effect change in ourselves. That's the point of this story, Daniel and Joseph's story. And this we cannot do on our own. Only Jesus dwelling in our heart can accomplish that impossible task. And praise the Lord that it is an impossible task because I can't do it. And praise the Lord for this promise Matthew 19, 26, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The greatest want of the world is the want of men and women with integrity, with character, with the cooperating with God to move the world for his sake and for his righteousness sake. God intends to do it again. Are we going to be the one that responds? So I want to conclude here by stitching together the statements that we have jumped around. Okay, we've, we've jumped around, but I feel like it is important to read the passage, the full passage, all the way through together now. The history of Joseph and Daniel is an illustration of what he will do for those who yield themselves to him and with the whole heart seek to accomplish his purpose. The greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right, though the heavens fall. But such a character is not the result of accident. It is not due to special favors or endowments of providence. A noble character is the result of self-discipline, of the subjection of the lower to the higher nature, the surrender of self for the service of love to God and to man. So what will it be for you? Will you respond to the call? God is giving us the opportunity to be men and women like Joseph and Daniel, to have characters like them, to have an impact like they did. And if we look at the world around us, all around us, Voices, souls are crying out for men and women of this caliber. The world needs it. And God wants to provide for that need. So what do you say? Will you respond?
Will you give to God your service, your heart, your commitment to fulfill the greatest want of the world? Well, I'm going to stop sharing my screen here as we conclude, and let's bow our heads for prayer now together, shall we? Father in heaven, we lack the capacity, we lack the power, we lack the ability in and of ourselves to do anything good. But yet we see the high calling that you have given to us. The world around us is crying out for people of character, people of decision-making ability, people of principle who can rise up and stand for the right, though the heavens fall, to effect change in a way that Joseph and Daniel was able to do. And Lord, we know you intend to do it again. And for the sake of the gospel, we know that the great work yet to be done is to prepare a world for Jesus to come. And how far we fall short, how far short we fall of that high standard that you've given to us. But Lord, we claim that promise. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So we claim that promise. And we ask that you will come into our hearts, transform us from the inside out, that we might not be complacent with what has come before. May we not seek for some glistening thing that the world offers to us, but may we seek the character tried in the fire as gold that's tried in the fire. And may we be worthy representatives of the living God today in our sphere. And may we be true to duty as a needle to the pole. And may we also stand for the right, though the heavens fall. Please accomplish this in us. We give you permission. And we ask and we pray now these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.